besides building everything that we do on Jesus, right? As we, we want to be a people of prayer. And as I was watching um, the, the mass exodus that occurs um, and the commotion that occurs, um, would, would that even be a reminder and a, and a stirring in our heart week in and week out as we watch that process? Um, to not take that for granted of what the Lord has, has gifted to us, that we would even in these moments be praying for the brave souls um, who are pointing um, the kids to Jesus, right? That it's not just a means of making it um, more comfortable and here for us as we approach the Word, but it's that they are being pointed to Jesus week in and week out. And so we're grateful for those of you who serve in that regard. And we're asking, right, um, we're not presuming that the Lord has to do anything, but we're asking Him to save and to rescue and to, to grow up a generation who will trust Him and trust His Word. Um, and so we're, we're glad um, to get to do that, and we will we'll put up with a little bit of commotion, a little bit of noise um, for the opportunity that the Lord has provided. Um, I think my heart was, it was in that a little bit because, you know, last week was, was Redeemer Borger's first service, and, and so we, we, we prayed for that, we talked about that, and as I'm coming up, I feel like the Lord was even saying, like, let's not just presume that that just happens, right? Like, the, the, the birth of something is always glorious, and so that I want us to be a church um, praying for other churches, and so this morning, as Borger meets again, that we would be mindful of that. Um, and then a couple years ago, we had a gentleman named Tanner House who came and, and preached a sermon for us, um, and their very first service in Odessa is happening this morning. That God is continuing to raise up churches, right? The church is the hope of the world because the church has the gospel of Jesus, and it is his means, and, and his plan A and only plan to reach the world is through a body of broken and imperfect people trusting Jesus. Um, in living out um, all the one another's, of bearing one another's burdens, of forgiving one another, um, of, of pursuing one another, praying for one another, and then seeing that go out as light posts in a dark and broken world. Um, and so, just grateful that God has been so faithful to do that here, that He's doing it in Borger, that He's doing it in Odessa, and that the work isn't beginning because those people are there. It, they're getting to just continue in in the ancient work that God has been doing and will continue to do for His kingdom and for His glory. Um, all right, I guess we're done. So, um, all right, if you have your Bible, um, we will be in 1 Samuel 23. We've been working through Samuel now for several months. Um, this historical book um, showing us kind of the time period of leaving the judges and going into the monarchy um, and, and watching the prophet Samuel, um, the rise and fall of Saul, the rise of King David, um, and, and seeing God's faithfulness in the midst of, of chaos and of political unrest. And so the last few weeks, what we've seen is that even though Saul is still on the throne, David has been anointed. He will be the next king, and David is not um, an, an heir of Saul. So this means the, the, the throne is moving into a new family because of Saul's disobedience, his lack of trust of God, his his persistent failure to pursue God, the throne has been moved to David. And so David is anointed king. Um, he had once served and, and soothed and, and won victories for Saul, and now Saul wants him dead and has um, even turned on his own family, his own daughter, his own son, because they seem to be aiding and abetting David. And so the last few weeks, we've just seen a lot of violence and a lot of drama as Saul is pursuing 
wanting to kill David, trying to cling to something that's no longer his to hold on to. And so we're going to pick up this morning in chapter 23. And and if you remember last week, we kind of ended with um, Saul ordering the massacre of of, of all the priests except for one. Like He just wiped out um, a whole city, all the livestock, all the animals, all the priests, um, in rage because they, he thought they might have helped David, right? Um, and so let's pick up in, in chapter 23, verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? And David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise and go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his man went to Keilah, fought with the Philistines, and brought way with their livestock, struck them with a great blow. And so David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. All right, so we're going to stop there for just a second. We're, we're reminded, right, that even in the midst of difficulty and turmoil, life doesn't quit, right? And one of the things that, especially after a, the death of someone or maybe a diagnosis, right, we, we often want to hit the pause button and catch our breath and, and figure out what's going on, and yet the world just keeps, keeps going. And so David is being hunted by the king, right? The priest has just shown up, the one lone survivor, and David has promised to protect him. And then you're reminded, oh yeah, the Philistines are still an enemy of Israel, and they're still doing skirmishes and battles along their border. And so Keilah is this kind of isolated border city. Um, they are, they're an agriculturally kind of rich and abundant place. It's a walled, fortified city. And so it's harvest time, and the Philistines are just like, we're just going to keep robbing it. You're out here, you're alone. David hears about it. And even though he's got his own issues and his own problems, he's like, the good shepherd. He goes, we, should we help? I've got some four, five, six hundred men with me. And he asks the Lord, should I go? God tells him yes. He tells his men, and they're like, hey, we're, we're not sure that's a good idea. right? We're, we have our trouble. So he goes and asks the Lord again, and the Lord says, yes, go. They go, and they, they win. They defeat the Philistines. They push them back, and they have liberated this city. Right, so let's pick up in verse 6. When Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Keilah, he had come down with an, the ephah in his hand. It was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abathar the priest, Bring the ephahs here. And David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell me your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. And David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. And David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. 
And Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah. He gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hands. Right, and so um, in the in the it was part of the the high priest garments. Right, um, there was a pocket. Um, we see in Exodus 28 that the Urim and Thummim, right, some sort of like um, die type thing was cast. Right, and it would you would answer yes and no questions of the Lord. You would roll this and it would show yes or no. And so he's he has this now because the priest has escaped the last one, and so he's asking the Lord, "What do you have for me?" And he says, are they coming? Yes, they're coming. What are the men here going to do? They're going to turn you over. And you're thinking, wait, what? What is going on? He's just liberated them. He's won a battle. Like, he, Why would they turn him over? Because the king is coming. And they have heard what he has recently done in Nob. Right? That he destroyed, wiped out the whole city. And he's bringing the army. He, this, this people, right, they're, they're going, David, we appreciate what you've done. We don't want to die. And if he's bringing the national army here, we're going to die. And David understands that it's, it's because of him, right? They're going to destroy the city on my account. And so David doesn't press them into a hard decision here. He's willing to leave, right? Because he doesn't want more innocent blood because of him. And so he's willing to leave and go back out into the wilderness. All right, let's pick up in verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gabeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakla, which is south of Jeshom? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and part shall be, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and he and he who has seen him there, for it has told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. And then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose, and they went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshmon. All right, so listen, we... We see betrayal here, right? This, this people now, they're like, hey, we think we can gain something from the king by turning in David. And so they send folks to say, hey, David or Saul, we know where David is. He's in our region. We can surround him. We can keep him there. You come down and do what you need to do. Thinking the king is going to give us favor. He's going to give us reward. He's going to give us riches. And you, you see how broken Saul is at this point that he says, may God bless you. May God bless you. When, when David is the Lord's anointed, that Saul thinks that he has somehow found favor, that David, this cunning one, has finally been discovered. That he is confused and twisted as David is being betrayed. 
we've the last few weeks have tried to show you some of the psalms that are tied to this time period. Um, Psalm 54 is specifically about the the Zephites betrayal. So Psalm 54, it's a short psalm, like seven or eight verses. Um, All right, so we we know David now has been betrayed. Saul's looking for him. He's been able to kind of hone in on the situation. Let's continue. So Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so he went to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. And Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. And so we are seeing here an example of verse 14, that Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. That basically we have this really close, right? This is when you're watching the, the miniseries, right? Your heart's pounding. Because you see David on the rock with nowhere to go, scurrying, trying to get away, because to come down off this mountain was into a plains where they would have been easily spotted. And Saul and his army are on the other side, right? And they're kind of like rotating around this mountain, this rock face, looking to find them and destroy them. And the hand of God rescues. Because the messenger comes, and the king is reminded of his other duties, right? That he has other jobs other than to kill David, and that he needs to go and fight the Philistines once again. And so they leave, right? Not knowing how close they are to having got what they came for, they leave. Right? That David remembers this rock as, as the rock of refuge, right? A rock of escape. All right, we're going to keep going. Verse 1 of chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall shall seem good to you. And David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went out on his way. And so we have this kind of humorous scene um, that's also, your heart's kind of like, that that Saul goes into a cave alone because he has business to do, right? You don't take your armor bearer and and folks like that when you're doing your business. And, And he's in, of all the caves, he's in David's cave. And now you can imagine David and his men, and they're like, it's Saul. It's Saul. Like, how fortuitous is this, David? Kill him. Right? Like, he's doing his business. You can get him now. God has brought him into your hand. And the 
David sneaks up. Most likely the, the, the robe has been probably laid to the side at the moment. He cuts off a corner and goes back. Saul exits, and he's telling his men, yeah, the, like, I, I don't want to rebel against him. Like He is the Lord's anointed now, and I know that I've been promised that I will be, but he's still the king, and God's still in control, and he has not called me to kill him. It's not what he's asked me to do, and to take from the robe was, was an act of, of rebellion. right? It was, it was to show that you're cutting away from, from the king. So let's see how Saul responds. Pick up in verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave. So, right, so Saul has exited. Now out comes Dave, David. And he called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not put, on, put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hand. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you, are sure, that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Super bizarre, right? right? He comes out, he's let Saul get a little bit away, right? He's not back to his men, so that if they need to grab him real quick, if he starts calling for help, they can. And he goes, Saul... And he immediately like treats him like the king. Right? And he doesn't he doesn't accuse Saul of like, you crazy lunatic, what are you doing trying to kill me? He says, Listen, I know you have people in your ear. Right? He gives Saul the, the opportunity to back out graciously, right? To blame someone else. And he says, I want you to know I'm not trying to kill you. If I was, I had opportunity, and here's the proof. I, my hand is not against you. And yet you consistently are coming against me. Like, well, listen, in, in Exodus 23, right? Like, you don't kill the innocent. And he's like, this is a plea asking Saul to repent. He's saying, Saul, I'm innocent, and I'm asking the Lord to, to show that, to avenge me. 
He's saying, Saul, please stop this and turn back to the Lord. Because if you continue, you are going to be judged greatly by Him. And yet He is showing kindness. He is showing respect. He is speaking truth. He is calling him to repent. And he, he reminds him, he says, listen, out of the wicked comes from wickedness, right? Like wicked deeds come from wicked. And Saul, like, I'm not doing wicked. You are. Right? And, and, and so you see this very real, hard, truth-filled conversation and Saul does not do what I think any of us would have anticipated. He starts to cry. And you, you just see like the torment and the turmoil he's under. And he, he just has these like swings all over the place. And he's like, hey, kill them all. Now he's crying. And, and, and asking David for forgiveness and saying, you're more righteous than I. Like, you've get, repaid me good. I've repaid you evil. Like, he knows what he's doing. And, and then he even says, like, I don't understand why you did it. Like, I'm your enemy. I should be, because I think of you as my enemy. And you were put into... I, God put me in your hands. It lacks common sense, David. Why didn't you kill me? Like, you can see Saul struggling and wrestling with this. He's looking at this with worldly eyes. Like, David, you could have ended this, and you didn't, because he's not looking at it with spiritual eyes. So, so listen... Two chapters we've been, we've been pushing through and pushing hard for a few weeks here, looking at big chunks. And, and here's the question. I want us to look at chapter 23 and 24 this morning with this, this question in mind. What do we do when we are in fear? Like, like where, where does fear drive us? Because in this, we have seen Saul driven by fear to rashness, to violence. He's out of control. He's paranoid. He's attempting to cling to something that no longer belongs to him in, in, in the throne. Huge emotional swing, right? Like we see him being driven to kind of crazed action due to the fear of David coming for the throne or of losing control. But what do we see David doing? Where do we, like how do we see him responding in fear? Because we saw in verse 3 of chapter 23 that his men are afraid. We see Jonathan in verse 17 saying, like, don't fear, talking to David. If we go to some of the Psalms written during this time, Psalm 34, 4, David writes this, I sought the Lord and He answered me and He delivered me from what? From all my fears. Right, that he had fears. He's admitting that he's afraid. Right, we see many of the Psalms from this time as David crying out, emotional, asking God to answer, afraid of what's going on, and yet continuing to turn to Him. Alright, so don't, we don't want to respond like Saul. We want to respond like David. So what do we see David doing during this kind of harrowing time? The first is this. Is David continually pursues, prays, and seeks God. Right? Like It, it sounds like a no-brainer, but in the midst of being hunted, of fleeing, of staying one step before death, that he is still finding time to seek the Lord. Look at verse 2 of chapter 23. Therefore David inquired of the Lord. Verse 4, David inquired of the Lord again. Right, if we go down to verses 10 and 12, right, he's, he's asking, hey God, what do you want me to do? Do we need to leave? Do we need to stay? Are they coming? That he is pursuing God. 
again, if we go to Psalm 34, right? What you say, I poured all of this, all of these things out before you. I sought the Lord, and He answered me. Verse 10 of Psalm 34. The young suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Well, David lacks good things right now, but he's saying, look, I'm seeking the Lord for them. Look down in verse 15 of Psalm 34. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. His ears toward their cry. He's, being, he's reminding us. like He hears our cries. He knows us. He knows our situation. He knows our circumstances. And then Psalm 142, too, another psalm from this season in David's life. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. He's saying, listen, I have fears. I have complaints. I have trouble. And where do I take them? I take them to God. And I take them to him continually. Over and over and over and over again, I do it. Listen, he does not assume because he's the Lord's anointed that he gets to just do whatever he wants and God will bless it. He is continually seeking wisdom and guidance and direction from the Lord. Assurance. He's continually doing this. Listen, for us as, as a, a church body, the Lord has been gracious and faithful for almost 10 years now. We don't then get to say because of that, we get to quit seeking the Lord. Right? That we'll, we'll just kind of ride the, the past momentum. Like That's arrogance. That's, that's presumption. We continue to seek the Lord's guidance and direction and wisdom for the next step and the next step. What do you have for us? What do you want for us? We want to honor you and we want to come to you. You're our rock of refuge. The church, even in the midst of trouble, are we consistently seeking, praying, and pursuing the Lord? The second is this. David leans into promises. Look at verse 17 of chapter 23. Jonathan, who's shown up, the, the, the king's son, says to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king. God's already told him this, but he's reminding him. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. In verses 26 through 28, we're at where we have that scene where they're kind of wrapping around the mountain. Why do you think David refers to God as rock and refuge all the time? Because God has literally been a rock for him a literal rock that he is clinging to and is rescued in. It's, it's a constant theme of the Psalms because, God, because David has seen God be a rock and a refuge. Psalm 57 is another psalm from this era. And in verse 1, he says this, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for, you, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Listen to this. Till the storms of destruction pass by. David knows that smooth sailing hasn't been promised even though he's going to be king. That circumstances are going to be difficult. And so he's saying, I'm clinging to you until the storm passes by. Like he's trusting these promises. And I think it's important for us this morning to be reminded that David hasn't seen Jesus on the cross. Right? He doesn't have a resurrected Savior yet. We get to look back not only as God is rock for David, but we get to see the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus as a rock that we can cling to this morning. And so we need to lean into the promises of God as David does. That Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. 
It's, it's a huge promise that Jesus understands because He has lived this life. That He has prepared a place is what He tells His disciples. Like, you're afraid? I'm telling you something. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back. Those are promises for us. That He leaves the Holy Spirit so that we're not alone. He gives us the Comforter. Right? That He tells them, you will have trouble in this world. Psalm 57.1, there will be a storm. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Right? I've overcome this. John 10, He says, you're secure in My hand. Like These are promises that we lean into when the, the circumstances and the difficulty of life come. But many of these are about His presence. Right? You think about especially your, your kids. A lot of kids are afraid of the dark. Jude right now is afraid of the dark. And so if we need to be outside at night, it's like, hey, Dad, are you coming with me? I know you asked me to do that, but are you coming with me? He doesn't need me to do what was asked. He needs me to be with him. He needs presence. Emmanuel, God with us. My spirit, I leave with you. You have access to me in prayer. And because I've restored you to the Father, you are welcomed in the throne room of grace. What God is giving us in the midst of not a promise of smooth sailing is presence. Until the day our faith is made sight. Like that we have something to cling to. We have an anchor, a rock to cling to. He says that there will be trouble in this world. But I take heart, I've overcome it. In Hebrews 11, we often think of that as the hall of, hall of faith, right? This, all these glorious saints of old and what they do, what they've done. But at the end of Hebrews 11, he says this, and there were those who lived in caves, and those were those who were overrun by foreign armies, and there were those who were imprisoned, and those who were sawn in half. Like he's laying out some horrific life circumstances. And he says this of them, the world wasn't worthy of them. But they were looking forward. They had a promise of a heavenly city. And they weren't looking to this life. They were looking to the life to come. And they were hoping and longing and clinging to that. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, yeah, you don't know their name, but God does. You don't know their name, and yet God was faithful to them. Even in the midst of horrific circumstances, Jesus was sufficient and enough. So in Psalm 56, 11, he says this, So in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? It's like, Saul can't do anything to me. God can. Saul can't. Right? I trust God. And what he's saying is this, I'm not going to fear those who can only affect my body. Right? I'm going to trust God who has my soul, who I'm secure in His hand. And so what, what David is saying here is, I trust the character of God. I do not trust my circumstances, I trust God. That He's good, and He's in control, and He's trustworthy. And so if God is in control, if He's trustworthy, and He's good, even if our circumstances are less than ideal, even if they're horrific, that we can lean in and trust Him. So he writes this in Psalm 56.4, In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? He's reminding himself this, right? Because he, he is afraid. He's not, he's not unaware of being hunted. But he's continually telling his heart what to trust in, what to lean into. 
that we know that death has been defeated in the death of Christ. Death is not our greatest enemy anymore for those who trust, love, and follow Jesus. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so death doesn't hold power over us anymore when we know Jesus because death is simply the door to Jesus. That He won't withhold any good thing from us. That He will give us everything we need for life and godliness. And that at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. So He's like, whatever comforts the world promises, God has them more. Forever. In the prayer song of Hannah in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, she, she, she sings and kind of prays out like, God, He raises up and He lowers. Actually, when we think about position or status or reputation, it's in like God, that's in God's hands, so we can, we can trust Him in that. It's why David didn't feel the need to kill the king, because he says, God will raise me up when the time is right, and He will lower Saul when the time is right. I don't have to do that. So would we be encouraged that this is our future? Listen to Revelation 7, verse 16 and 17. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is what we, we cling to. If life gets harder, we cling to that, that there will be a day where the Savior will look at you face to face. He's like, you're not hungry anymore. You're not tired anymore. You're not beat down and scorched anymore. You're with me. You will feast forevermore. Every tear will be wiped away. You are known and you are loved and you are safe forever. And we will say with Paul how light and momentary was our suffering compared to the surpassing weight of glory that we have now and forever. David is clinging to promises. Promises that are promises of promises we have more to cling to because we have Jesus. That when fear comes that we would continually pray and seek God that we would lean into the promises. And in that, and we'll do this quickly, that we will then be discerning, right? Saul, we see confirmation bias. The Zephites come, they tell him the information he wants, we know where David is, we'll help you get him. And he just assumes the Lord has blessed me. Like he is mocking God with confirmation bias. David gets false prophecy, saying, listen David, we were told that when the Lord would deliver your enemies into your hand and you get to do with them what you want. And David says, no, no. God has not said that. David shows discernment and does not act in killing Saul, even though a prophetic word had been given. Right? That was false in that case. Saul gets true information and misinterprets it. That we have to be discerning in our fear, and fear makes us question everything. And so David sometimes waits. He doesn't kill the king. He waits. Other times he acts. Right, and that he continues to serve and to love. He serves the, the folks of Keilah. He doesn't let them be destroyed. He serves his men who are afraid right, and continues to inquire of the Lord to give them comfort and encouragement. That he takes in the priest at the end of chapter 22. Right, that he, he even calls Saul to repent. Right, that David is leading and discerning and serving as a shepherd. And the last thing is this. 
would we be reminded that one of the gifts that God has given us in the midst of fear is one another. Jonathan shows up to strengthen the hand of David. Jonathan, who weeps with David, also speaks truth to David. Listen again to what he says, chapter 23, verse 16. Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, knows this also, that he has wept with David, and so he's able to say the hard, true thing in the midst of it emotionally. Right? You can imagine David saying, Don't fear, brother. Got lots to fear. But Jonathan has wept with David. And so when Jonathan says, trust the promises of God, he's able to receive that truth. Church, would we be community and family where we will weep with one another when we're afraid and when difficult circumstances come, when we need to cling to the rock of refuge? But will we also be a people who will say the true thing? God has not left us. He's not forsaken us. He will wipe that tear away. He is sufficient. He will be near. We have to be both. If we are only willing to be the truth speakers and you're not willing to weep with people, your truth will not be heard. And if you only weep and never speak truth, the weeping is for naught. We need both. We need both. To bear one another's burdens is one of the things we are called to do. The church, a call from us to see in David's life, this one is to turn to Jesus. He is our friend. He's our friend. He has secured for you hope and life. He has overcome the troubles of the world, and He's alive today. Because of that, He has given us His Word. He's given us His Spirit. He's given us His presence. He's given us one another. He's given us access to the throne room of grace to guide us, to anchor us, to give us discernment that we can trust Him until our faith has been made sight. We get to do it together. You're not alone. You're not alone because of us, but you're also not alone because of Jesus. Would we take heart from David grabbing hold of the rock? Would we take hold of the rock that is... All right, let's pray. Father, you are merciful to us. Lord, would we not take the stories of Scripture um, and just run past them? Would we see what we can cling to, what we can hope in? Father, would you give us eyes this morning to see you as our rock, as our anchor, as our refuge that we can cling to gladly together? That you haven't called us into this alone? And so, Father, would we not let our circumstances rock us to a place of, of disbelief, of unbelief. And God, would we long for the promises that we've seen come to fruition, we've already seen come to fruition, and would we long for those that are yet to come? That you are good, you are in control, and we can trust. Father, we need you, and we ask you to speak and to sink this into our hearts and our souls today, that we would not just merely nod in intellectual agreement, but that this would anchor our souls, that we would believe and trust this, for you are good. Jesus' name.